raise our children in the ways of God, knowing that it is the best possible thing for us to do. So Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way that they should go. Even when they are old, they will not depart from him. So uh, we've been praying and thinking about Isla, and uh, Debbie has a few words that she wants to share that she feels God has given her specifically about her. Okay, guys, can you bring Isla up? Is that okay? Because just while I am speaking about what I felt God was saying, we just need to see that wee cute face, don't we? Just the cutest wee soul. Okay, I was having a wee think about Isla's name. Very often there's real significance in terms of our names and what they mean. So I actually discovered that the Spanish meaning of Isla is devoted to God. And so... As I was thinking about this, I really felt a sense that Isla's father, God's heart, is that she would live a life which is devoted to him, where she knows who he is and knows who she is and his sight, who he has made her to be. And that as she does that, she actually becomes more like him with his character and starts to reflect um, his love. Um, Johnny, have you that wee picture? Yeah, the other thing that I really sensed whenever I was praying over Isla was just the word colour. I kept getting the word colour. And you know those really stunning um, autumn walks that we have in the park? And they're so vibrant, it kind of causes you to stop and just wonder at the beauty and the majesty of it all. And what happens during this season is that, you know, the leaves take on all sorts of beautiful shades. Shades of reds and yellows and greens and browns. And the sense I have is that this little one is so full of... Look at that smile. This little one is so full of life and so full of colour that her character and her personality, um, as she moves among the people who God will, will place, place her in and place her with, that she will reflect just the beauty of that colour and that life that we see in those beautiful, beautiful scenes and the heart of her creator as well. And First Kings, this is going back a little bit to the devoted to God thing, First Kings 8, verse 61, I guess mirrors our heart um, as a church family for this little one. And it says, So let your heart be fully devoted to the Lord our God, to live by his decrees and follow his commands. So that's very much our prayer over this little one. Okay, brilliant. So um, Samuel and Carissa, um, standing before God today to dedicate your little uh, child to him. So Samuel and Carissa, do you promise to do your very best in raising Isla in a loving family where she is recognized as an incredible gift in God, encouraging her to grow into the child and individual God has created and planned for her to be? Great. Excellent. Um, now, I also have another special group of friends who are here for Isla, uh, who are godparents. So we have Jessica and Serena and Cameron and Scott, do you want to stand for us, please? So these are, these are the godparents. You've got a very special role to play in encouraging and supporting um, Samuel and Carissa and uh, for praying for and uh, keeping an eye on little Isla, which is a, looks like a terrible task. She's not cute at all. Um, so do you commit to the role of encouraging, guiding, and praying for Isla as she grows into the girl and woman that God is calling her to be? And do you commit to supporting Samuel and Carissa in their role as parents, being there through the ups and downs of life, celebrating when things are good and helping when life is tough? Brilliant. Thank you. You can sit down. All right. Debbie, do you want to come over? And well, we'll pray. You could... Maybe put your hand on Isla, because I'm holding a microphone. So, um, Father God, in the name of Jesus, we present this child, Isla, to you for your love and protection. We also ask you to equip Samuel and Carissa for all that lies ahead in the task of parenting. Thank you, Jesus, that you invited children such as this to sit on your knee. And we thank you that every child is incredibly precious to you. May Isla know your love, 
your presence and your favor upon her life all her days. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we'd love to do, um, last of all, uh, is that if everyone could stand and that we as a, as a church family, as actual family, would like to stand to support and encourage Samuel and Carissa and to bless Isla um, in everything that she does. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your heart is for this family and we thank you that wisdom and grace is available to Samuel and Carissa as parents. Provide for all their needs as they honor you for the wonderful gift that you have given to them. Bless them as parents and bless their time together as a family. Take special care of this child as she faces a world which can at times be difficult and painful. May she turn to you and your light and hope in such times. We thank you, however, for the joy and faith and love which already surrounds Isla in the presence and company of friends and family. Thank you for her uniqueness, that you knit her together in her mother's womb. You speak to us in Psalm 139 of seeing her growing in secret, knowing that she was there, seeing her before she was born. Help Samuel and Carissa to carefully shape and develop her unique personality that you have made. May she always be aware of your loving presence and her uniqueness and value as she walks through life. Amen. Amen. Why don't we give them a big round of applause? Thank you very much. All right, you can take your seats. So we just want to run through a few um, announcements. We've got a little gift that we're going to give uh, Isla as well, just a blessing from the church here. Um, so we've just got a few different announcements to go through. And as we're doing that, our ushers are going to come and take up our offering. So if you've come prepared to give, that's amazing. But if you haven't, just uh, don't feel worried about that. Let the offering basket pass you by. We do have gift aid envelopes on the backs of your chairs or in the plastic wallet on your seats. If you want to give through the gift aid scheme, you can do that as well. So a couple of announcements. We have a, um, a sister church over in Lurgan, and we do lots of stuff together. So tonight in Lurgan, we have an encounter night, which is at half past six. It's a brilliant opportunity to come together to worship and to spend a little bit of extra time just pushing into to God's presence, hearing from him, responding to what he is doing. So that's half past six uh, over in Lurgan. And then... Um, in the next couple of months, we're going to have a conference that we have. This will be the second year we've had it. It's called uh, Tabar. And um, the theme is going from the um, the known to the unknown. There we go. Leading from the known to the unknown. That's coming up on the 14th and 15th of June. But last year it was sold out. So I would really encourage you, you have to have a ticket um, because of, you know, we have a maximum capacity in that building and for catering purposes too. So just encourage you as soon as possible to get a hold of a ticket uh, for that as well. Okay, so that's pretty much all of our announcements. I'm going to pass over to Alan now um, and he will lead you for the rest of the service. Thank you. Morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here today. It's been a great privilege to be able to dedicate that Lila, and um, <clears throat> you're all very welcome. If you're visiting with us today, I know many of you are. It's great to have you here, and um, we hope that you feel welcome. And um, if you don't already have a church family, um, then maybe you might even consider coming back. You'd be you'd be so welcome. It's it's great to have you. Um, uh, I hope uh, it's okay. Uh, we are going through a study at the moment on the Book of Acts, so. Um, I hope you'll um, you'll not mind us kind of going on with that. Um, this morning, what I'm going to be doing is trying to like actually recap a bit of what we have been doing, because now that we're post Easter. You know, we're on a bit of a journey now into the next phase of the Book of Acts. So I'm going to recap a little bit. So hopefully that'll help you understand where we've been and also um, to where we're going to go. Um, my printer ran out, so the first page is a bit sketchy. So I'm going to have to, um, but I managed to get the rest of the notes. You will hopefully be pleased to hear um, as we uh, preach it. But let me let me try and do a little bit of a recap. Let me pray before we do that, can we? And um, before we kind of just get to opening God's word and uh, hearing what He might want to say to us this morning. 
Holy Spirit, we thank you for the sense of your presence already with us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness that we've sung about, and we bless your name in this place. And God, as we worship you this morning, as we seek to align our hearts underneath your Lordship, Jesus, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would come now and unpack your word to us, the things that you want to say. Teach us and lead us in the truth this morning, God. Pray that there be, Lord, at least one thing, or that you would say to every single person here this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work now, we pray. Come and have your way. Have your way, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the overall theme of, of what we've been teaching on here in Emmanuel over the last number of weeks is that the, uh, the title is Unfolding the Great Commission. Um, Jesus came to earth, died, rose again, lived a life that showed us what God really looks like. If you want to know what God is, look, like, look at Jesus. He's the full, exact replica of who God is, the re- revelation, the, the, the perfect revelation of what God like, God's like is in Jesus. And, uh, and Jesus lived a certain way and then gave the authority that he had to us, which he won back for us at the cross, to go and fulfill his dream for the world, which was to fill the whole earth with his presence and to fulfill the Great Commission, which was to go into all the world and preach the gospel um, to people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And, um, and the person that wrote the book of Acts was a man called Luke. And Luke also had written one of the gospels. And so he, he wrote his, his gospel, Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts as a kind of two-part series. And so some of the things that we have realized in this kind of origins series is that Luke architected, structured his book his gospel and the book of Acts in a careful and patterned way. And we realized that there were six kind of key phases, if you like, six, if you want to even maybe say chapters within the whole book, um, that uh, show and detail to us how the gospel and the good news of Jesus made it into new territory all the time. So it started in Jerusalem and made it all the way by the end of Acts to Rome. And it made it all the way years and years later to Ireland and to beyond, which is why we sit here today. And, uh, and so each phrase was kind of bracketed. There was like a summary sentence that was there's six sentences that are near enough the same, scattered through the book of Acts. And they kind of mark the end of one phase and the transition into a new phase. And so this morning is about talking a little bit about the transition from the first phase to the second phase. And I'm going to talk about that later. Pentecost, right, was the moment in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell, we sung about it this morning, and birthed the church. It was a supernatural thing that God did. And the Spirit, as we see, will continue to be the key leader of the church's direction and establishment for growth in the years ahead. And the, the dunamis, which is the word that's used for power in the, in the, in the New Testament, um, the power of the Spirit came upon the church and it initiated and catalyzed the movement. They were thrust out of the room. They couldn't stay in church. It overflowed out of them, and they went out onto the streets and proclaimed the good news of Jesus. And many people came to know the Lord. And the church then continued to walk, and this is key, in the way of the founder, right? They didn't just believe a theory. They walked a certain way. They were so captivated, mesmerized, taken up with the beauty and the wonder of the person of Jesus Christ, how he lived his life, how he served others, how he championed the poor, how he loved the, the kids, you know, how, how, how he healed the sick, how he reeled against the injustices of the dead. They were so taken by this man, Jesus, and what he'd done for them, and ultimately what he'd done for them in his death and his resurrection, laying down his life, praying for those that would take his life as they did it. They were so taken by this man that they continued to walk in his way. And the implications of this Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falling upon the people, were both wide and deep. They were wide in that the age of God's grace was now for everyone. It was for all flesh. And so when the Spirit came upon what the book of Acts is telling us, how a small Jerusalem minority persecuted sect became a global Gentile multi-ethnic phenomenon. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? A global Gentile multi-ethnic phenomenon. 
right? And, you know, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are part of this today. This is our story. This is not like a nice little Bible study, the thing you do when you go to church to listen to like a nice little talk. This is the story of history itself, that in a little place called Jerusalem, a bunch of people in an upper room got filled with the Spirit of God. Something came upon them outside of themselves that endued them with the love and personal presence of God himself poured into their hearts. And it changed them, changed their lives. And in changing their lives, they helped change the world. And this movement then started to break out beyond the walls that they had sat in as the Holy Spirit fell into new cultures, new ethnicities, and has moved throughout the world. And today there's two billion Christians. Today, all around the world, many people will worship Jesus because of this moment. Because of this moment in history. This story is our story. It can be your story if you want it to be this morning. And so it was wide. It was for the whole world. Because God wants to fill the whole world with his presence. That's God's dream. He loves this world. He loves it so much. And he loves each and every person here this morning. He loves this world. He wants to fill it with himself. He's a good father. And not only was it wide, it was deep. The Holy Spirit was poured deep into the hearts. The love of God touched the the hearts of these just ordinary men and women like you and me, fishermen and tax collectors and and builders and mace, the Holy Spirit was poured into their hearts in such a dynamic way. And they became sons and daughters of the living God. They realized that their identity was founded in God alone as his sons and daughters. And then they became part of this incredible family which practiced the ways of Jesus. It was generous, radically generous as we'll see. It was loving. It was sacrificial. They saw signs and wonders. They saw the miraculous. They saw wonderful things happen. And this covenant community, characterized by white hot love for Jesus, started to move and see the world changed and transformed. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to understand how can we be a church? Because we think that Luke wrote Acts in a way for us to continue. So how can we learn from the book of Acts? And how can we be a church and be a people and be a a family that are characterized by the same characteristics of the early church, okay? And so here's here's what some of them are. We, We realize that they were a devoted people. They were wholehearted in their love for Jesus. And that was expressed in four or five different ways. And I just want to recap on them because I want us to remind ourselves of how important they are because these form the foundations on which we build a church. Prayer. They practiced prayer. They weren't into prayer. They were into Jesus. And because they were into Jesus, they prayed. Because prayer is simply communion, talking with Jesus, having a relationship, a personal friendship with God. And Jesus had showed these Jews who knew how to pray, who had heard people pray these big, long prayers, the big, long words, and they brought up going to church, the church of the day, praying and praying and praying. But then when Jesus prayed, it was different. It was like intimate language. It was like real. It wasn't ritual or religion or fake or to impress other people. It was real. And so they were like, Jesus, like real hardened man, fisherman, Jesus Teach us how to pray. Because when you pray, it's different. And so he did. He taught them how to pray. And so when Jesus went back to heaven, guess what? They continued to pray. And they prayed in intimate ways. And they received and became aware of the presence of God in their lives. (laughs) A love that was completing them and making them whole like nothing else could. And this was not just intimacy with God like a like a a father and son, or like a best friend to best friend kind of language. This was intercession. And so what we find in the early church is that the intimacy that they came to know in God, that that restored to them an understanding of their true identity as sons and daughters. And because as sons and daughters of God, that means they have the authority of God. And so they could pray. And so you know, some people think the Bible is a boring book. It's anything but. Because what starts to happen when we get to Acts chapter 4, they get in their room and they start to pray despite persecution and the building starts to shake. Like, can you imagine it this morning? 
if we started all the the whole building starts to shake, right? This was like full on. It was intense, but it was the kind of thing that you wanted to be part of. Because stuff was shifting in the atmosphere. Lives were actually being changed and transformed. And so they had this practice of prayer. And so how do we apply that to our lives today? How do we apply it as a church? We, we want to be a people that value prayer. We want to come together like we have this morning. And we want to value worship. We don't do these things for the sake of doing them. The reason I'm going through this this morning is I want us to understand the intentionality between, behind everything that we do. We don't do things because we have to do them. We don't do things because we're into things. We do these things because we're into Jesus. We're, we're in love with Jesus. We love what he's done for our lives. And so this is how we express these things. And so we pray. We pray as a, as a church. We worship as a church. We come into his presence. But we intercede. Right? We believe stuff is going to change when we pray. Like That's why we come together fortnightly to pray. This is how we apply this. When we're in small groups together, we pray. We just invite Jesus to come and be amongst us because he longs to be. And as we do that, then he starts to share his heart with us and we realize that we have authority to pray certain things and we intercede and we pray and things change. Principalities and powers shift. Things come into being when we pray. All right? The second thing Bruna taught us was about the practice of the breaking of bread that when the church came together, they took some bread and they took some wine or whatever it was and they broke bread. And as they did that, they remembered what Jesus had done for them. But they didn't just reminisce on the cross, as amazing as that is. They also remembered the kind of life that Jesus lived, which was sacrificial, other-orientated, radical, countercultural. I'm not living for myself, I'm living for others kind of love. And so every time they came together and they had a meal, like it couldn't be any more simple. Jesus isn't complicated. Some bread when you're eating, which you do at least three times a day, and a cup. And when, and when you eat and when you drink, just remember the body of Jesus broken, broken for you. And when you take the cup, just remember the blood of Jesus that was poured out for your sins. And remember that that love is the most powerful force in the universe. It conquered death. That's the kind of love that's so powerful that it raises up dead things out of the grave, right? That kind of self-sacrificial love changes the world, flips it upside down. It's not the power that we see out there. Don't be seduced by the world around us. It's not the power out there that changes the world. It's the power of love. And when we break bread in a very simple way, we're remembering that. And we're not just, re rem we're not just remembering, we're receiving afresh the presence of Jesus to transform us to become more like Christ. So in this simple act of ongoing remembrance, the early church were increasingly formed into Christ-likeness. And so how do we apply that? Well, we do it. And we're going to do it more, okay? So we, we do it at the minute. We do it once a month. We're going to do it twice a month. And uh, we hope uh, the first and third Sundays of every month we're going to break bread together. We hope to get to the place where that will be available for people um, every week. But for now, we're going to integrate that more because we think it's a key and core practice that shapes and forms us into the people that look like Jesus, right? We're supposed to, by the way, if we're Christians, we're supposed to look different. Not in kind of prudish, holier-than-thou ways, right? We're supposed to be different, right? The Bible calls us aliens, freaks, weirdos, right? Be okay, right? If some people sometimes think you're a bit weird, not, not because you're all goody two-shoes, but because you love relentlessly, because you're sacrificial, because you lay down your life, because you prefer others, because even the people that are your enemies, you find a way to go across the street and love them. That, that's kind of weird, right, in terms of the way the world thinks. And so the practice of things like prayer and the breaking of bread remind us of the kind of people that Jesus is calling us to be. And so when you're together, when you're having each other in your homes or you're going for a coffee or whatever, you might want to practice that too. You might just want to pray before you do that and remind yourselves of what Jesus has done and how he's changing and transforming us into the people that he's called us to be. The third thing Debbie taught us, fellowship or the uh, koinonia is the is the Greek word that captures it that we talked about a little bit more powerfully. And this was the one-minded, deep purpose that the church had. They were a loving 
covenantal family. That word covenant means like a deep, deep promise, like a deep, deep commitment to be with one another. And that's modeled on the commitment that Jesus had for us. And they were a family, a mission, and they were caught up in the great, like they didn't just love one another in some hippie kind of free love kind of, you know, smoke dope, we all love each other kind of way, right? They didn't love each other like that, right? They loved each other with deep sacrificial love. They were completely committed to one another under the lordship of Jesus onto the fulfilling of the Great Commission. They didn't just love each other. Like, loving one another is brilliant, right? But if you just love each other for the sake of loving each other with no purpose to it, you end up getting bored. But when you love each other with a desire to lay your life down for something, then you you forge a love and a commitment and a covenant to one another because you're giving your life for something, something bigger and beyond yourself. This was a family, but a family on a mission. And ironically, what happened is as they give their love away to others, their love for one another deepened. That's the church. That's what the church should be. The church should be a place where there's always room for somebody else. And we love one another. And as we, as the church, commit ourselves to do that, then other people are drawn into that. And so as we apply that to our own lives... We want to leave room and margins as a family. We want to have family times. We'll have a couple more picnics coming up and a family day, which we'll announce over the next week or so. And we want to leave space to get to know each other and to deepen our love and affection for one another. People from different backgrounds, different social classes, different jobs, different parts of the town. This is the church. One under the lordship of Jesus. But not just for the sake of having a nice wee bit of fellowship, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. Yeah, to, to provide environments where we can encourage one another onto the fulfilling of the Great Commission. We, as we love each other as we give ourselves away. And then the fourth one was the Apostles' Doctrine. And the early church we learned were committed to the message of Jesus, right? They were committed to the good news of the kingdom of God, and they were shaped by the person of, I've mentioned this already, but they were shaped by the teachings and the person of Jesus. They weren't, they weren't, right? The, the problem is, and this is maybe many of your experience uh, in church, they didn't just believe a theory. They didn't just believe a statement of faith. They followed a person, right? First and foremost, Jesus didn't say, Here's a theory, believe it. And Jesus didn't say, um, here's a prayer, just pray it. Jesus said, I am the way, follow me. Right? That's what he called us to, a life of following him and his way and realizing that when we lay our lives down, it's when we actually truly find life. Yeah? And so the, the disciples and the early church, they were committed to this. They were committed to the apostles' doctrine, which was just simply the way of Jesus. And despite the persecution that came there were, they kept on praying and they kept on proclaiming, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The Caesar is not Lord. The gods of this world are not Lord. Netflix is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I'll submit my heart to him and him alone, right? That's not to say all those other things were intrinsically necessary, bad, but if they are your Lord, then Jesus is not. And Jesus is either, as the old preachers used to say, either he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Yeah? And the, and the, and the disciples in the early church, the men and women of the early church, they were passionate about this. This was a, a radical message that Jesus is Lord. And because they proclaimed that, and because they were committed to that, the disciples effectively continued the ministry of Jesus on the earth. Right? They effectively kept the ministry of Jesus going on the earth. And that's what we're called to today. So we walk in the way of Christ and his apostles, the way that they taught us how to live. And so how do we apply that? Well, we apply that by what we're teaching. We're not teaching you how to be a cool church. Right? We're trying to teach as a, as a leadership, and what we're trying to learn together is how to build upon Christ. That's the foundation of the church. It's not, it's not a, a really nice building and really slick worship and, and uh, you know, really good like kids' ministries. As, as important as all as that, that is, that's not the foundations of the church. The church is founded on Jesus. 
who he was and what he said. And, and the fact that we're trying to take our time to go through this series and establish in our early days the foundations of the church is one of the ways that we're trying to apply the apostles' doctrine to who we are. Okay? It's based on Jesus. Uh, this is what it says in Ephesians. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on, look, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the plumb line. Jesus is the one we take all our measurements and orientation around. He is the cornerstone. And the apostles and the prophets, they set the foundations on which the whole building can then go up. And, and, and as, a, as a church, hopefully you've got a, a feel of that over the last number of months as we've started, that it's been built on, we want Jesus, we want to see Jesus manifested in our hearts and in this town and in this city and in this nation. We want to see the vision being Jesus because he, he is the one supreme God that we have been captivated by. And his love for us, is, it's wrecked our lives in all the best possible ways. And so we want to see him be glorified. We want to see him magnified in our lives. And we want to build a church based in and around him. But then the apostles and prophets receiving wisdom from Jesus, they help set the foundations. Do you think the way this church started was prophetic? Of course it was. Like, where else do you hear of like two churches kind of coming together and trying to configure what they're going to... It was prophetic. It was the leading of the Holy Spirit, right? And it's not that we've got everything right, but we've been trying to listen to the Spirit so we can set the foundations prophetically. And apostolically, what that means is that we build on the ways of Jesus, who He was, how He lived. We set the foundations, and then we build on top of that, yeah? So that we can be a people that actually look like God. And then the last one was, we looked at last week, the last characteristic of these the origins of the early church was generosity. As a result of being transformed by the love of Jesus, the generous, overflowing, all-embracing, giving and giving and giving, the self-emptying nature of Jesus, who had, the Bible says, who had equal status, if you like, with God the Father. And he didn't consider that, he didn't consider that something that he wasn't. He was that. But it says that he emptied himself. He left all of that. And he, he came like us. And then he became obedient to death. And not just any old death, but the death of the cross. The worst that humanity could do on God, they did on Jesus, on the cross. And, and so this is just the generosity of God the Father. He wants to give, and he wants to give us good gifts. And he wants to pour out his love upon us. And the early church were really, really transformed by this. They were, I can't get this into my head, and neither can we when we really think about it, that with no other agenda other than he just loved us, God poured himself out. And the early church were so moved and mesmerized and captivated and changed and transformed by this that they started to love and be generous radically. Like, I don't mean that they were just buying each other a coffee. It was much more than that. They, they were laying down their lives for one another, selling property, putting the money at the apostles' feet, making sure the poor were looked after and championed. And it seems that the early church got a bigger buzz out of giving than they did hoarding. They just they gave it away. It tells us that, that all the believers were of one heart and one mind. No one claimed that they had any possessions of their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work for them. Listen, there was no, there was no needy persons amongst them. That's what the church is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be just the place for, for the rich and the powerful. It's supposed to be the place where there's no needy persons. And so how do we apply that? We just want to talk about giving a lot. We don't want to shy away from talking about giving. We don't want to shy away from talking about money because we don't believe it's ours. We believe it's God's. And the more we give, the more he can trust us with giving us more so that we can see the city transformed. What if the church was known as the place that give the most? 
that gave away the most. And it's great that we can do that. It's great we have food banks and CAP and, you know, Connect Cafes. And, but you know what? You know, I, I just feel as a church, God is asking more of us. Give even more. Give even more away. If you give so much last year, if you give 10% last year, try and give 15%. Just, just I dare you. I really dare you. And if it doesn't work, come back and we'll have a chat, right? Because I'd nearly want to try and give it to you out of my own pocket. I'd nearly, because I can bank on it that most. I can bank on the fact that God's purposes are whatsoever man soweth that we reap. And the more we give, the more our hearts grow bigger. The more our hearts enlarge. And as a church, we need to be more and more generous. Let me tell you a story. One of our, I wanted to say this last week, and didn't have time, well, kind of forgot. Um, but uh, one of our churches, part of our Tabar network of churches, the Journey Church in Lisbon, about three years ago, one of their, that started to contemplate having, buying a, a new building for the church. They were meeting, they were meeting in Lisbon Recreation Center for five years in a room um, on a Sunday morning. And uh, one of their leaders had a dream about um, their church being in an old furniture store um, just past the Longstone there in Lisbon. And uh, they went and had a look at that particular uh, furniture store that was in the dream. And um, it was empty. And the guy that owned it happened to be a believer, Christian. Uh, so they went and met him. He was really, really generous to them. was prepared to give them really good rent. But they didn't uh, have any money in the bank. I think the building project was going to cost around 150, 180 grand. They didn't have any money, and um, but they believed that God was going to provide. They heard the Holy Spirit speak to them, right? Building on prophetic foundations, yeah. And um, and so as it as they did that and they prayed, um, a number of wonderful things started to happen. A couple in their church, <laughs> a husband and wife, separately without having a conversation together, felt the Holy Spirit nudge both of them to sell their house and to lay the proceeds at the feet of the leaders. And so they didn't know how to have the conversation with one another, but uh, they finally did. The wife said to the husband, the husband said, God's been speaking to me that, about that as well. Sold her house, give the proceeds to the church. Alongside that, my friends, some of our fr some of us know Andy Masters and the guys in Lagan Valley Vineyard, they had heard that a church that they didn't really know that much about, but they, they knew something about without really having a really, a really strong friendship with. They just heard that they were on a building project. And so they thought, should we be blessing these guys? Should we be giving these guys some money? But their story was that they really needed more money to employ some staff and to be able to see some of their projects develop. And so they were having a board meeting thinking, listen, God feels like God's speaking to us about giving to this church, but we really could do with some of the more money ourselves. And so they're wrestling with this, praying with this, and in the midst of the conversation, whatever way it kind of happened, they had a conversation and they came to the realization that they felt the Holy Spirit said to them that they needed to give 10 grand, <laughs> when they could really have done with 10 grand, to the Journey Church, for their building project. And so Andy phoned Gary. Right? This, 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 is, this is the book of Acts kind of stuff, right? This is the church, not, not divisive, not competitive. How can we bless you? And so Andy phones Gary. Gary arrives at church a couple of Sunday mornings later. Gary comes up to the front, and Andy presents Gary, another church in the town, with a check for 10 grand. Gary goes back tells his church what has happened. The songs that they've been singing, that they'd felt God had been speaking to them as the, as the Journey Church, the, 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 the band and Vineyard were singing the same songs that morning. God was just confirming all of that. And then in the midst of all of that, so the Journey are up and running. They've got, their, they've got the money that they need to get on with trying to start their building project. And then they had other kind of wonderful kind of provision that came. Meanwhile, Andy's just giving 10 grand and wondering, What's I, what am I going to do? Like, you know, we, we could do with like a bit of money to get things going on. Three or four weeks later, a businessman comes and meets with them. A young business guy who goes to his church and says, Andy, I feel the Lord has spoken to me and told me that I need to give you over the next three years 140 grand to invest in your church, to invest in the staff, to invest in the projects that you're on. Remarkable. 140 grand over three. I was trying to get his number, right? <laughs> <clears throat> but 
But what I'm trying to say, this, this is the kind of thing that happens when we are generous, like radically generous, radically generous. This is the way that things get flipped. And the reality is we're generous and we think we're given and we think we're losing out and we get far more back than we ever could have imagined. That's what it is to be the church. And so we want, we want to talk about giving a lot. Okay? So, uh, and, we, and we want to be challenged and we want to continue to challenge ourselves over the days ahead. That's how we want to apply that. But I want, I want to take the last 10 or 15 minutes here this morning to kind of transition us a little. So these are the origins of the early church. These are the characteristics and how we want to apply them as we build a foundation in and around the cornerstone who is Christ. But as we come to the end of the first phase, which is around about Acts chapter 6, right, um, there is a few things that happen that kind of trigger the next wave of growth. Okay? Before I do that, though, there's a few other things that we're going to be picking up in the days ahead. That um, oh, sorry, in the days ahead that um, we're going to preach on. But these are other key factors that happened throughout those first six chapters. We see incredible signs and wonders. We see persecution start to start. We see an amazing boldness kind of kick in with the early church. And we see them exercise strong leadership in, um, in some of the decisions that they have to make and some of the resistance and threats that they have to deal with, okay? So I'm not going to say too much more about them because we're going to pick some of those things up over the next few while. But what I'm trying to say is this incredible movement has been gathering weight, right? There was, I don't know, 12 disciples. It was something like 120, they reckon, in the upper room of Pentecost. Uh, 3,000 people came to the Lord. So th this movement, right? We, we love to talk about things going viral these days, right? Th there's been nothing like the Jesus movement ever in the world, right? And so this movement is now gathering weight. Hundreds, thousands of people have come to Jesus. They're seeing miracles. They're seeing buildings shake. They're giving away. It's the most radical countercultural community that you can ever imagine. And it's happening. And it's growing. And it's developing. And people are repenting and coming to Jesus. And churches are being planted in homes. And the city's being transformed. And they're getting put into prison. Like Peter and they're getting kicked out of the temple or getting kicked out of church and being stuck in prison because of what they're preaching and then angels are praying in prison and shaking the buildings. This is all real life stuff, right? You don't, need to, you don't necessarily need to watch any box sets for this kind of stuff. This is all real life stuff in the Bible. This is all kicking off in Jerusalem and the church is growing and developing and the authorities don't really like it. But what I want to draw your attention to today and leave us with a bit of a challenge on is that it's all still kind of happened in Jerusalem. Right? Now, that's okay, but we know that it couldn't be the end because the Great Commission was to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's the equivalent of going Portadown, Armagh, Ireland, the ends of the earth. But it was still all kind of centered around Jerusalem. And, uh, and so something happens that starts to move it outward. And it's a case of the Spirit using situations and circumstances to break them out of the building to thrust them out with an, a message that they're overflowing with. And when we get to Acts chapter 6, it tells us this, okay? Before we come to the end of the first phase, it says this. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, that's the Hebrew Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, right? So they were feeding the poor, they were feeding the widows, the widows, okay? And there was... He break Jews, and then there was Hellenistic Jews. I'll explain who they were in a moment. But some of them felt they were being overlooked. Some people are getting more than we're getting, right? That's what was going on. And so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, wouldn't it not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word? It would not be right, sorry, for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on the tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who you knew to be full of the spirit of wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip and all those other boys, right? Right? They presented these men to the apostles who were prayed, and they laid hands on them. And so the word of God spread, 
The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So that last verse, verse 7, so the Word of God's Spirit, is kind of one of the summary statements. This is the end of the first phase, right? So when you pick up verse 8 after that, it starts to tell us of the next wave of expansion. And that starts with this man called Stephen, it talks about at the top here, who was chosen by God, who was a bull witness, who starts to... Um, rebuke and speak against the temple and the tabernacle and remind them that even though they're waiting for the Messiah, they actually killed him. These are the ones that put Jesus on the cross is basically what he's saying. He's telling them to repent. And they don't like him telling them that. And so they stone him. They stone him to death. And a bit like Jesus, he forgives those who are throwing the stones as they kill him. He's walking in the way of Christ. Yeah, right? And so while this is happening, um, and after this happens, it tells us this, if you jump forward to Acts 8, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those, look, this is it, those who have been scattered preached the word of God wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. There's another kind of geographical place that's going to be touched with the gospel. And he proclaimed the Messiah there. So what happens is Stephen stands up to the temple. They stone him. They don't like what he's said to them, even though he's spoken the truth. The persecution comes against him, but against the whole church. It seems like the devil's going to won because he's going to rid these Christians out of Jerusalem. He's going to send them out using the temple and, and the jealous kind of high priests to um, persecute them. But as they go, they just gossip about Jesus. And they go into all these kind of surrounding parts and just take Jesus with them and they talk about him. And so the thing that the devil means for bad, God uses for good. That's what God does, doesn't he? All the stuff in our lives that the enemy meant for bad. Everything that's gone on in our lives that's been destructive, God just takes and he turns it around if we let him. He turns it around and he uses it for his glory. And, and God was able to turn the evil of this into good because ordinary, everyday people carried the message of Jesus wherever they went. But there's another interesting thing that happened, and this is what I want to finish with today and just challenge us with as we leave. The seven men, as you read, were chosen. And the seven men were chosen because the church is growing pretty steadily and pretty rapidly. And they can't kind of cope with all the work. The apostles are struggling to cope with all the work. So he's saying, we need a few boys in here. We need to get the reinforcements in. They need to be full of wisdom, full of the Spirit of God. But let's get them to help continue to love and serve the poor because these are, are really, really important matters. And, um, and, we, and we need to make sure that this is happening right. Now, why did they do that? They did that partly because of the growth dynamic, but they also did it because, if we go back here, yeah, if we go back here, there was an issue. And what was the issue? There was internal strife that was coming from ethnic tensions. There was eternal strife that was coming from a sectarian spirit. Let me try and explain. The Hebrew widows were like from Jerusalem. The Hellenistic Jews weren't necessarily from Jerusalem. The word Hellenist, right? Sorry for the geeky bit here, right? But just it helps you understand. The word Hellenist describes a particular point in history where the Greek empire influenced the world with its culture and with its philosophy and with its ideas. It started with Alexander the Great, and then through the Greek empire, they influenced and imprinted most of the known world, or that's part of the world, with their culture, right? And it actually, you might not know, but it still does influence, like, philosophy, science, all of those kind of things, right? And, and so what happened was Hellenistic people were people that spoke the Greek language because it kind of became pretty universal. So these Hellenistic Jews, they were, they were Jews that had come into Judaism, into the religion of Judaism, but they spoke the Greek language and they lived the Greek culture. The Hebrew Jews didn't. They were like, they, they saw themselves as like the, the pure Jews, we're the pure, we're the pure ones. We're the real, we're the real Jews. We're the, we're the real deal ones. And they prided themselves that they lived in the land of the patriarchs and that they used the language of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those who went before. 
The Hellenistic Jews, on the other hand, were jealous. And they felt like the first group made them to feel like outsiders. And sadly, the strife between the two wasn't automatically eliminated after they came to Jesus. And so it appears that some kind of spiritual favoritism kicked in where certain groups got more than others. And so for the beauty of all the early church that we've talked about, there was pride in it. There was a religious spirit and there was sectarianism. And that spirit says that some people are more worthy of the grace of God than others. And to be fair to the apostles, they dealt with this really, really well. Because they recognized that, first of all, we need to make sure we're looking after the poor and prioritizing the poor. And secondly, we need to make sure that the, the message of the gospel, it's impartial. It's for everyone. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, it's for everyone, everybody. And God is no respecter of persons. And God is no respecter of race, nationality, background, social class. And so as this movement grew, they knew they needed to make a structural change that helped serve the movement so that the movement can continue to, continue to grow. They could educate and disciple people in the ways of Jesus, but they could still look after the poor. And they developed this brilliant community-wide plan to do that. And the leaders discerned that this was a wise, wise choice. But what I think is happening here is this is preparation for what's about to come. Because as we go on over the next number of weeks through the book of Acts, we're going to see this, right? The Holy Spirit falls on all the wrong kind of people. The Holy Spirit falls in all the kind of people that the Jews didn't think deserved to be in the family of God. And it was going to wreck their heads. And some of them weren't going to be able to deal with it. And some of them were going to miss out because the Spirit was going to move beyond the Jews. The Spirit was going to move beyond the walls. The Spirit was going to move beyond the walls of their building, into the streets, into the parts of our towns and our cities that we've never been before because we don't even like those parts. The Spirit was going to move because God's heart is for everyone. And God is no respecter of denomination. And God is no respecter of People's backgrounds. And people is no respect, God is no respecter of a religion. God loves humanity, period, full stop. God loves every single one of us. And all of us, all of us fall short of God's glory and we need His grace in our lives. And when God looks at us, He doesn't see any of the labels that we put on ourselves or one another. And God forgive the church when it's done that. God forgive the church when it's bought in to a religious sectarian spirit because it's from devil. It's, it's hellish. It's demonic. It's not of God. And God is calling his church in these days for the spirit to break out because here's the thing, the spirit, the Holy Spirit cannot work with that kind of spirit. It cannot work with it. It has to bypass it because it's an, the antithesis. It's the opposite of the heart of God. It's the opposite of the culture of heaven. And so sometimes what you find in church leadership is when you get into some church politics and some church disagreements and there's a little bit of a squabble and you, you get into that and you get underneath the surface of what's really going on, what unfortunately sometimes you find, and I don't say this in judgment because sometimes I find it in myself, you find that it's, it's, it's actually not about the issue that you're arguing about. It's actually a deeper thing that's rooted in our hearts, which is I think I'm slightly more worthy to receive the grace of God than they are. And God cannot work with that. Because the Bible says God resists the proud. He resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And so the Spirit of God, I think, as a church here in Emmanuel Portadown, is calling us to move beyond our cultural pre pre prejudices. To move beyond the cultural stuff that just gets on us sometimes because we live in a world where this kind of stuff is entering back into the mainstream. But our hearts are supposed to be open. Our, our, our hearts are supposed to be welcoming. Our hearts are supposed to be ruined so much by the grace of God that we cannot overflow with that. And so when people and countries and presidents and nations are talking about putting walls back up, we are supposed to be the people that say, Spirit, break out and break our walls down so that the lost and the lonely and the broken can come home and that we can realize that Jesus Christ under his lordship makes us one. But the problem is, and I'm speaking to myself in the mirror, it's uncomfortable. Because we would rather think that Jesus was a white, middle-class, Sunday-going churchgoer. 
and he wasn't. That's not our Savior. That's not our Lord. For a start, he didn't even look like that. But secondly, he doesn't compartmentalize himself to any particular race or to any particular religion or because he's above it all. If Jesus is Lord, he's a Lord above every other denominational label that we place upon ourselves. And the thing that we're going to find out about the book of Acts as we go on is that God's very presence is going to fall on them. He's going to fall. Here's He's going to fall on female slaves. The ones in that culture that were the bottom of the rung. He's going to fall on Ethiopian eunuchs. He's going to fall on demon-possessed freak shows that walk the streets that everybody else bypasses. He's going to fall on people from different races and backgrounds and nationalities because the Spirit was poured out on them all. Remember, the book of Acts is the story of how a Jewish minority persecuted sect are going to become a global, multi-ethnic, multinational, Gentile phenomenon that's going to move across the face of the world. And one day, one day, whether you believe it or not, we know how the movie ends. We know how the story ends. The Bible says that around the throne of Jesus will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation proclaiming with one voice, Jesus Christ is Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to redeem people from every tribe. And so the early church, as great as they were, they had to deal with this. They had to do some work. They had to do some heart surgery. And we live in a town and in an area that it's its own for sure of sectarianism over the years. We live in a country with increasing people from different nationalities, tribes, backgrounds. And here's the thing. It's so easy just to join in with what everybody else says. But it's yellow. And it lacks courage as the church of Jesus to not buy in to the rhetoric that's just not even true. They're here to take our jobs. Nonsense. We need, to, we need to push back against that and create a welcoming space at the table of God for lost sons and daughters to be the family of Jesus. That's who Jesus calls to be. And that's what we believe the apostolic foundations of the church have to be built on so that we deal with our cultural prejudices. So like the early church, we make room for everyone. Because you know what it is, as I finish, every single one of us are broken. I might have come here today, it might be the first time you've been in church for years, but every single one of us are broken. None of us have got it sorted, none of us have got it right. None of us are any better than anybody else. We used to say, if you put your problems out on the table, if everybody could put their problems out on the table right now, you'd probably make a core grab for your own. Yeah? Yeah. Because we've all got stuff. We've all got stuff that's tricky and it's difficult. We've all got stuff that God needs to deal with. And we all are in desperate need of the grace of God. And when we receive it, we become like him. And we love with courage. And we love with boldness. And we love with a ferocity and a fierceness that allows us to see other men, women, boys, and girls become part of the family of God and serve King Jesus alone. He alone deserves our wholehearted allegiance in order to come against the tactics of the enemy that seek to steal and to kill and to destroy and to divide. It's time for the church to roll its sleeves up to walk on the God-given authority that's been given and to take back from the enemy all the things that he's stolen so that God can have his dream of a world filled with his presence and people that he's created in his image from every tribe and tongue and nation becoming part of the family of God. And so as we transition into this next second and third phase of the book of Acts, which is going to take us from about Acts 6 to sort of Acts 12. So if you want to read or reread that over the next number of weeks and months, as we just stay in this and pull out some of the things, what we're going to see is this is the moment when the Spirit breaks the church out of Jerusalem into all the parts of the town and city and the surrounding regions. And today we sit here because the Spirit broke out. And sometimes, you know, it'll happen despite us because God will do His thing but he's looking for a people that he can do it with.
and he's looking for a spirit like his that he can work with. And may God give us the grace and the courage and the boldness to be those kind of a people and to prepare our hearts for what he wants to do in the future. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I just thank you that you're here. I thank you for the beauty of who you are, Jesus, and we thank you for the wonder of your church. And God, we say we're sorry where we've got that wrong, where we haven't represented you well, Jesus. Where we've allowed counterfeit spirits to lead us and to influence our decision-making. And Jesus, we repent of that today, and we say, would you, Holy Spirit, come and cleanse our hearts and make us more like you, Jesus, and more like the people that you're calling us to be. Father, we thank you that in the year today, Lord, that there's, you know, each one of us got a, have got our own walls up. I've got our own walls, uh, Lord, just because of difficult stuff that's happened in our lives. We've got walls of control, walls of fear, walls of shame, walls of condemnation. And Jesus, just really pray that your love, God, would right now melt that in our hearts. And that your Holy Spirit would break into our lives so that we could break out and be the people that you've called us to be. Jesus, we give our hearts and our lives to you fresh. And we say, oh Lord, come and have your way in our hearts and in our lives. And God, I pray that you would just give us the grace to know that you continue on with us throughout this day. And throughout this week, and God, give us deciding grace to choose you in these days and to seek first your kingdom for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's great. It's been great to have you with us this morning. If you'd like us to pray, chat to you about anything, you know, we're just here for a while after the service, or we can do that at any time. There's tea and coffee. We'd love you to stay and hang out with us for a while. There's no rush away at all. If you'd like to go and get your kids, that would be brilliant there, just getting out round about.